Historic news from Murfreesboro tonight as the first ever contact with extraterrestrials was made. Their message? WMTS is out of this world. Tune into my show, Bahana Radio, every Tuesday, 10 to 11 a.m., where I play pretty much any type of music that I'm vibing with that week. Hope to see you there. Private joke. Adopt Why U.S. kids. Present. What to expect when you expect A teenager learning the lingo. GOAT, G-O-A-T, acronym, stands for greatest of all time, as in... Spaghetti sandwiches for dinner? They're my fave. Dad, you're the goat. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt US Kids, and the Ad Council. WMTS programming is made possible by contributions to our station from listeners like you. Thank you. Hey, this is Greta Van Fleet, and you're listening to 88.3 WMTS Murfreesboro. This is the 2448 show, hosted by Adam Brown, produced by Connor Smith. second episode here at WMTS Murfreesboro, and we are excited to be here. I am Adam Brown. My producer is Connor Smith. Connor, how are you doing, buddy? I'm doing outstanding. How are you doing? I am doing good. Uh, fun week of football. I mean, sometimes it was fun, sometimes it was not very fun. The games were kind of slow, but we'll get into all that. Uh, this is the 2448 show. It has been 24 hours since Titans NFL Sunday. 48 hours since Tennessee Volunteers SEC Saturday. And before we get into everything, we did want to take a minute and just recognize uh, what day it is. It is an important day in our country. Uh, it's the anniversary of 9-11. Um, and just wanted to express uh, our gratitude for all the first responders that work in our cities, um, in our state, in our country, in the military, um, and just everyone that sacrifices so much so that we can do things like have this show and be at this school, um, and just grateful to live in the country that we do in the greatest country in the history of the world. Um, but today, we have Tennessee, Virginia recap, we have Tennessee, Austin P recap, we have Tennessee Titans and the New Orleans Saints recap, and today, Connor, we have our very first guest on the show. Great guest, you know, Ms. Michelle Knezovic, great resume, excited to have her. Yeah, uh, Michelle was uh, our professor here at MTSU while she worked at 102.5 The Game in Nashville, and now she is an in-game host for Tulane football in New Orleans, so she was the perfect person to have on this week as we we recap uh, Saints and Titans. Uh, But before we get into our usual uh, rundown, um, I wouldn't be a very good friend if I didn't check on my producer uh, after a tough week for his Crimson Tide. So, Connor, we're going to do a mental health check here. Uh, how are we doing, and, and, and do you need any help? Can I help you? You know, I'm actually not really mad about the game because, I mean, it, it sucks to lose, you know, any time, but also 
that was not SEC play, so it really does not affect, you know, our standings in the conference or our goals in general. So, I mean, the loss still stinks. We're, we're still, you know, win down though. If we lose again, play out of the CFP, but, you know, we can very easily win out and um, make the playoffs. Yeah, that's the thing with the new uh, playoff format is that, you know, it's, it's really cool to have these games early in the season, especially uh, on campus like uh, Alabama and Texas did. Um, but at the end of the day, it's really not going to affect either of their playoff chances. And that's not, you know, that's not universal. If it was two different teams, maybe it did, maybe it didn't. Like Tulane losing to Ole Miss, they're, they're not making the playoff now. So, like, that non-conference game had a lot more weight. This one, either team can still win their conference and still have a really good shot at a playoff bid. So, I don't think you're, you know, your season's not done. It, it's not done, so to speak, but, I mean, it's week two. We're starting to get into conference play soon. Got to gotta get the QB position figured out, but, I mean, there's still a lot of time to improve. And I, I say that your season's not done from the perspective of assuming that Bama's going to have this figured out moving forward. There's still problems to fix and holes to fill. Oh, absolutely. So I, I did want to ask you, um, moving forward, we talked about this in our season preview episode. It was how quickly – I'm assuming Bama does get their quarterback situ- situation figured out, but how quickly does that happen? And so – you know more about it than me, but what's the best next move? I think, you know, you're playing South Florida this week, and no disrespect to South Florida, they're just not on the, the level of a Bama or a, an SEC-type team. I think you need to start maybe Milrow, but get all the quarterbacks in, get a rhythm. Um, as Saban said this morning in his press conference, that Tyler Buckner apparently has a really good chemistry with the receivers, which is what we really need. And we saw Milrow couldn't hit the open pass, you know, at all. But you have Ole Miss coming to town in two weeks. That's That would be a great game great offensive system under Lane Kiffin, but you've got to get it figured out now because you're starting to get into the big dogs where if you mess up against Ole Miss or someone else like that in conference, then number one, that's your second loss. You're out of the CFP, but also hurts your chances to go to Atlanta. Yeah, Jalen Miller looked the part against MTSU, but then not so much against Texas. So, you know, South Florida is a good get-back-on-track game, but even then, if he looks better against South Florida, are you going to feel all the way better about Jalen Milrow against Ole Miss, or are you still going to be a little nervous? I'd be a little nervous. Still really nervous because, I mean, like MTSU, the O-line, they're, they're a very good run uh, blocking team, but pass, pass pro, they're they're almost, like everyone's, you know, hyping up their weight and all that, how big they are, but if they're not as athletic as the former Bama offensive lines, and it doesn't matter how big you are. If you can't move with teams like Texas, Ohio State, Tennessee, you're not going to be able to protect your quarterback, and at that point, is well against USF. I mean, it's probably because they don't have the caliber D lineman like a big time school would. So I still will not be, you know, happy about that. Did they throw many screen passes against Texas? I, I was at I was at Neyland, and so I was driving back from the Austin P game during the Alabama game. I was just the I had my brother and his best friend in the back seat, and so every three seconds I was turning around like, what's the score? What's the score? So I, I didn't see the game. I just kind of like got updates. So were they? Were there, the thing that interests me is with how big that O line is, and you were talking about their athleticism and how quickly they. They throw many. Did they get the running back on the perimeter very much? They they tried to. You know, there was one in specific where they had McClellan run out on a screen, and Miller hit, hit him in the feet. And then a, a second one. It still haunts me this, to this day. You know, so many days later, where he ran. I didn't even know this was a per, this was a good question. I didn't even know he ran out like a screen and then went up for a wheel route, wide open. If he catches it, he's gone, and Miller over, overthrows him. His biggest thing is he can make the throws if he has confidence in himself. And whenever he throws the picks, he down himself as a new quarterback would, but he's really just got to work on that confidence and that pocket presence, honestly. Yeah, and I mean, 
has the he's the mobile guy. So if he, I feel like he would get his legs underneath him more, so to speak, if he used his legs a little more. Like if they got him comfortable early, if they called some design runs for him, as well as some like quick short passes that he's almost guaranteed to complete and then start you know moving into more complicated stuff I think that would help him settle down uh, especially in an environment like the one that they had against Texas absolutely Matthew McConaughey is on the sideline you got to perform you know dude he was going wild I saw um, a video of I think it was him and Joe Courtney he was going wild saying hook and horns and all that he was having a good time you know I, I wish he was no offense to Mr. McConaughey but I mean always got to got to impress him for him all right, all right, all right. Let's get into Tennessee, Virginia. I was uh, at Nissan. I'm going to say that a lot this season. I'm, I'm going to go to a lot of the Tennessee games. Um, so I'm going to have firsthand you know, recaps of somebody that was in the stadium, which sometimes that's a blessing, sometimes it's a curse, because I don't get the, uh, the behind-the-scenes from the people in the booth. You know, um, So the only thing I know is what I know from where I'm sitting. And, like, you know, I, I know a lot about the team, so – Excuse me. When they're like, uh, you know, the, the coach told the, the sideline reporter, like Holly Rowe or whatever, is like, I heard Heifel tell Brew McCoy on the sideline, the blah, blah, blah. I don't get that. So um, there's some other stuff that I may see uh, that I wouldn't get otherwise. But coming back from those games, I'm always going to try and rewatch. So I uh, should have some pretty cool stories uh, coming back here on Mondays. But uh, Nissan Stadium was hot. It was so hot. And I'm so just side note real quick. I'm so glad the Titans are getting a new stadium because I cannot stand Nissan, dude. It's awful. I can't stand it. And like the the dollhouses on both sides of the field are a joke, and like they can't fill it, and it looks terrible. And it, moving up to the the tickets are so expensive for the Titans games anyway. But then the ones that are affordable that are up on the third level, you got to walk up seven ramps to get up to the top level instead of just like enjoy sunlight. Right. It's not shaded. They're, the the ramps, if you're watching on YouTube, the ramps are like this incline. It's not this incline, it's this. And because it's this, it takes more ramps to get as high as you need to get. So you're walking back and forth, basically like the length of the quarter of the stadium, back and forth until you finally get up to your seats that you can't even see the field from. So the, the lower capacity for the new stadium is a good thing. It's a good thing because they can't even sell out Nissan. Tennessee sold out Nissan, and the Titans didn't. There was this whole thing about, like, Tennessee fans getting in it with Titans writers after that game. I That whole thing was stupid. It's it's very obvious that Tennessee Vols football is king in this state, and it's going to stay that way because Tennessee has all of the history and tradition that the Titans don't have because they were a transplant team. And that's not a bad thing. I'm glad they're here. It's just that that conversation isn't even worth having. And, yes, the, the, the main point was that the Titans uh, the Titans don't cater to Tennessee fans, and, and they shouldn't. Like, there were some people that were saying, like, they don't draft Tennessee players. And yeah, they've whiffed on some Tennessee players, like the year where they took uh, Isaiah Wilson in the first round, and then the Chiefs get, um, get Trey in the sixth round or whatever, and he's now their starting left guard every single week. So – that's just a miss by them, and honestly, I think another point was that Tennessee fans didn't want the Titans to draft Levis because they're Tennessee fans. I think that's stupid. That's not real. I mean, that's some of that is real, but the overall majority of people saw Levis in college, and they were like, why are we spending a second-round pick on this guy? I, I mean, I don't know. That 
I feel like the fandom carrying over from the college level to the pro level needs to just stay away, like not mix, because I don't really care who you, you play for in college, but if, in the NFL, it's the best guy available. And if a guy from Bama is better than your pick at, from Tennessee, then you take the better guy for your franchise. I will say, just to end that whole uh, that whole topic, I will say I do think the Titans can do a better job of integrating the Tennessee Volunteers fan base into their own because um, that's, a, that's a ready-made huge fan base for you. So why would you not – I don't think cater was the right word in that tweet that the Vols fans sent out that went viral. Cater is not the right word. It's, it's outreach. It's integrating. They're not integrating the two fan bases. They're like, okay, y'all have your East Tennessee stuff over there, and we'll be the Titans here. And if that's the way you want to do it, I can see that side of it too. But why would you not reach out to this massive football fan base that you have in your state and try to bring some of those people over in whatever form that may take? Yeah, I mean, it's like you said. that They've, they've not sold out Titans Stadium as a Titans game very much. You know, the Vols came in and sold out with, with ease. I mean, it's, it's the biggest brand in, in the state, I would say. The T is everywhere, so if you can get those guys in there, that's a lot more revenue for you so you can go out there and buy free agents and not be a quote-unquote small market team. Yeah, I agree. So um, back to Tennessee, Virginia, it was hot. And I thought that was going to have an effect on the players because it was having an effect on me in the stands. I got so sunburned, it was terrible. I went through three or four frozen lemonades that day. <laughs> um, and my fiancé almost passed out, and that's not even – I'm not even exaggerating. Passed out in her seat, um, but yeah, really uh, didn't didn't see slowness from either team, and really I think the Titans' new turf had more to do um, with complications for the players than the the sun did. I heard Brew McCoy said that uh, it felt soft and spongy, and he had to kind of like adjust to that. I've only ever been on the like uh, rubber pellet turf. This yeah. stuff is that like coconut husk, um, like they water it and stuff. Like it's weird, but yeah, he, Brew McCoy said it was um, it was soft. supposed to be cutting edge stuff, like the best thing you can get, so I'm, I'm glad they have it if it is, because the turf injuries were starting to become a big deal. Um, but the the two most encouraging things from that game, and it's, this is a little hard to talk about this this way, looking at how we played uh, against Austin P. but going back to you know just the mindset after the Virginia game, the two biggest encouraging things from that game were the running backs who played out of their mind, and the defense that was really, really solid. And Heupel had two, you know, go for it on fourth down, set the tone for the season calls in the first quarter. The first one worked out, and Joe Milton went through his reads, hit a running back. It was uh, Cam Selden, I believe, with, uh, got into the end zone. Great play by Joe. One of Selden's – oh, no, it was, uh, it, was Sam, it was Samson. It wasn't Selden. Yeah, it was Samson, right. Dylan Samson. Hit Dylan Samson, one of his four touchdowns on the day. And honestly, exactly what I said, set the tone uh, for how he wanted the rest of that game and the rest of the season to look. But then coming back, he did it again on the opposite side of the field, on their own 25, I think it was. And they got stuffed. The defense forced a field goal attempt, and they missed it. And that was when I knew this defense was going to be serious this year. And this front seven is serious. The, the secondary has some questions, which we knew that going into the season anyway. But this front seven is serious, led by James Pierce on the outside and Roman Harrison on the other end. Yeah, that front seven, you know, they were really good last year. They've kind of carried over to this year alone. Like last year, but they do they do bring in a new guy named um, Arian Carter, who's been picked with 
start out, maybe he can develop into – Did he win Mr. Football? He did. He did, Mr. Football from Smyrna. Maybe he can kind of transla- translate into like a Byron Young type player as he progresses, but I'm, I'm really looking towards him this freshman year. Yeah, he, he's going to have to have a good year because Keenan Healy, uh, the guy that we talked about in our first episode to transfer from BYU, I noticed him early on. There was a play where they uh, – Virginia, sorry, had a stretch run. All the blockers were lined up. He had a lane, and it looked like it was going to be like a 20-plus yard run. And Keenan Peely came from the other side of if you split the lines in half. He was on the other third, and he shot across the field, shot the gap, came through and stuffed the linebacker at the line of scrimmage. I was like, oh, I like this guy. He got a game ball after the game. He had four tackles, and uh, Hypel gave him the game ball after the game. And then it comes out that he has an upper body injury, which is really weirdly hockey-ish, like where they don't specify what the injury is, but it comes out he has an upper body injury. He's going to be out for multiple weeks, so it's going to be up to uh, Elijah Herring and Arian Carter, like you were talking about, to fill that hole. I didn't notice a lot from either of them against Austin P, which is probably not a great thing, but we'll see how they do uh, in the swamp in their first true road test on Saturday. Absolutely. I will say the good thing about Tennessee is, like you said, defense is really good, but the run game for two games, they had over 500 yards rushing and six touchdowns on over six yards per carry. I mean, I know it's Austin P in Virginia, but uh, Milton kind of struggled to start the year out. But if you're going to struggle, the run game has really carried him, and that's this is an offense where if Milton can get going with the receivers, that can be an even better offense than last year, I believe. Austin, uh, Austin P and Virginia, both games, Jalen Wright averaged over nine yards a carry, I believe. And that's splitting carries between three backs. It's it's a it's a three-headed monster weapon that Tennessee can reach in their back pocket and pull out whenever they need. And you saw them do that against Austin P, where it started to look a little, you know, not great. They were like, okay, here, and they just start let the running backs go. And they went from I don't really even know how many deep balls Joe threw against Austin P, but when things started to look sketchy, they went to perimeter passing and inside run game with their three running backs. And Jabari Small had a drive where he took them all the way down the field by himself, just like Jalen Wright did against Virginia. And when you have two running backs that can do that, that's a that's a luxury. Yes. Joe, Joe only had one bad series against Virginia. He had multiple bad series against Austin Peay, but there was really only one against Virginia. Uh, I think he had a throw behind Brew, um, one that was over Keaton, just went straight into the turf that didn't even make it to the receiver. Um, but they responded after that drive, which was the big key in that game, is after that lull, that offensive lull, they came back out, they responded and scored a touchdown, and then you know the rest of the game was just you know basically a formality at that point. But then coming back to play Austin P. Oh, and one more thing, the punter. The punter against Virginia had the worst day I've ever seen a punter have. I think he had three or four punts that he shanked. And he's the new Aussie guy. The, he's from, like, the NFL Academy in, uh, in Australia. So he does the, the rugby punt where you roll out to – he can – he's really – it's really impressive, actually. He can roll to either side. He punts with his right foot and his left really? foot. Ambidextrous, okay. Yeah, it's an ambidextrous punter, which that doesn't – I didn't even know that existed. So he can roll to either side, and then Aussie punts it, which gives your special teams coach – extra wrinkle because if you want him to act like he's going to go out there and kick it and then just keep it, he can do that. He can roll out and throw it, so it, it gives you an extra weapon, but at the end of the day you have to be able to 
Virginia, and we had two uh, two kickoffs go out of bounds. So not a great day uh, with the special teams unit and Mike Eckler. But then uh, against Austin P, they come back out, and I was specifically looking for how does the punter respond, and it was uh, it was. <laughs> It was supposed to be a tough day to look for that because Tennessee wasn't supposed to punt much, but then they did. And he shanked his first punt out of bounds, and it was looking like it was going to be a long day. But honestly, I think the Austin P game, for how for all of its struggles, one of the major things that is going to come out of that game that we're going to look back on is his next punt after he shanked his first one. He hit a really good, really well-hit high punt, a lot of hang time. Austin P. returner dropped it, and Tennessee jumped on it. I immediately looked to go find him. He was sprinting down the field to go hug the guy that recovered the fumble, hitting himself on the chest. He was fired up. And from that point on, he didn't miss hit another punt. So that was the best thing that could have happened in that game, is for him to mess up and then recover. And now he has all the confidence in the world going into the swamp where he's going to need it. Past that, Austin P game, the lightning delay was unfortunate, and a lot of people are blaming Tennessee's slow start on the lightning delay, and because of the lightning delay, they didn't run through the T, and I definitely think that's, I, that that doesn't have a lot of weight to it, but it's, credi- it, it's credible, like, I think that had an impact, but it's not the impact that people that you'll see on Twitter are making it out to be, because at the end of the day, you're the Tennessee Volunteers, and you're playing the Austin P. Governors, and it shouldn't matter whether or not you run out through the team. And while that throws off, you know, your, your schedule, your routine, and the tee that gets everybody fired up, you still got to come out there and play at the end of the day, and you're playing a lesser opponent, and it shouldn't matter. If that happened against Florida, I would say it had a huge impact. But against Austin P., you're still Tennessee, and there is a level of excellence that you are expected to reach, and they didn't do it. That's a problem. And going forward, I think the question is, is the Tennessee that we've seen in the first two games a struggling version of a better Tennessee, or is that the real Tennessee? You can tell me what you think. I I honestly think that there is a better version of this team out there uh, that we will see eventually, and they're struggling right now. Well, absolutely. I mean, talk about with with Bama, you know, they're rinsing out some stuff, but it's week two. I mean, there is a lot to change, and Tennessee knows they have to change it, which – which led to Joe Milton calling the players only meeting, which he's probably going to discuss and run through the team, just having the right mindset and attitude. But Tennessee is one of the most talented, talented teams in the country, and I mean they they need to work on the connection with Milton and the receivers. But outside that, there's really not much to harp on this Tennessee team. The the two things going into the Florida game that I would love to see fixed that one of these is minor, but I think if it could, if things fall the right way have a huge impact on uh, how this game goes. The first one is not small. It's huge. Tennessee had seven or eight drops against Austin P. And I think if you uh, I think if you correct even half of those drops, th- this game isn't, isn't that close. And while Joe didn't play well and missed some of those guys, he also had a lot. Of, he had the one throw where he rolled out to the left. The play broke down. He rolled out to his left, threw to his left, and hit uh, Deion Thornton in the chest. And Deion just washed his hands with the ball. Like, it was. It, it looked like he caught it and then like moved his hands around it and then threw it down into the turf. Um, and so the, the drops are definitely going to have to be fixed. But at the same time, Joe's got to hit the receivers because it, for every drop, there was.
was a pass that Joe missed. And so when you add all that together, that's multiple offensive series of just nothingness. And you can't have that. You can have it against Austin P. And you can have a little stressful game where you're not up by multiple touchdowns until the third or fourth quarter. But if you do that against Florida, you lose. Yes. I mean, I think his arm strength has hurt him. I feel like, you know, he's, he's more active this year. But he's throwing the ball like he's Uncle Rico, and it's hitting the receivers in the hands, and they're, they're dropping because he's, he's, hitting, so the, he's hitting the receiver that's over in their mountains. <laughs> yeah. um, Kamal, the other the small thing was Kamal Hatton, the corner for Tennessee. You love him or hate him, he, he runs his mouth a lot, and sometimes he makes plays like the interception that he had in the third or fourth quarter. Um, but a lot of the time, him running his mouth like that gets him beat, I think. And in the Virginia game, I noticed uh, he made a couple really good plays where he played the receiver's hands. So he never turned to find the ball. He waited for the receiver's hands to go up, and then he stuck his hand in the way and deflected two deep balls. Um, but I said at the time watching the game, I was like, that's going to get him in trouble eventually. Like, it's good that he made those two plays, but that as a corner, that's going to get you in trouble. And Austin P targeted him intentionally. You could see it. Every time they needed a deep ball, they went to his side. And they underthrew. Some people say they intentionally underthrow deep balls. I always think they're trying to complete a pass. Why would you ever leave it in the ref's hands? Um, But anyway, the the balls were underthrown. And the receiver tried to come back to get it. Kamal Haddon, playing his hands, doesn't know that the ball's underthrown and runs right into him, and it's a a P.I. And that's something that I would love to see him correct uh, before before the swamp because you're not going to get a lot of calls down there. They know just as well as Austin P did that Kamal likes to play that way, and so they're going to try and exploit that. And the one time he did flip his head around in Neyland on Saturday, he got a pick. So I would, I'd be really interested to ask a, a coach on Tennessee's defensive staff if that's something that they see as a problem or if that's something that they encourage or it's just like as long as you knock the ball away, we don't care. But I, I don't have any experience with – to play football. So in your in your experience, did coaches have a preference between playing the hands or playing the ball, or was it completely um, whichever the player's better at or preference style, that kind of thing? It's really the coach. I mean, I played defensive end, so I didn't get the experience of, of a DB's coach, but it really depends on, on the coach's preference and what he likes to run, because some, some coaches, once you go for the ball, some wants you to just absolutely annihilate the guy and make him scared to catch the ball. It, it's really just, like I said, the coach's decision. So moving ahead to Florida, you mentioned the team-only meeting. And that's why I think that being tested against Austin P. while it's not a great look for the team, while it lowered the line against Florida, while it lowered the ESPN FPI percentage, which gives Tennessee a 53% chance to win as a much better team, I think it was the best possible scenario other than a big win because Tennessee got checked at home against a lesser opponent instead of getting checked on the road in the swamp against a rival. And that wake-up call could be huge for this offense that started slow two games in a row. And I really am only placing it on the offense because the defense is doing enough. The defense is doing more than enough, and we'll see what they do against an SEC opponent. But so far, when it comes to defense, I usually just say, especially with the way that the NFL and college football is now, where it's all catered to let the offense have success, your defense had a good day if you're up or in shooting like shooting distance at the end of the game. They did enough. And then as the offense, it's up to you to take advantage of the 
way that the rules are set up for you to have success. Um, but yeah, I just, Milton's I don't lose to Florida quote at, at SEC Media Days, that's the kind of thing where I loved at the time that level of confidence, but now with the slow start, you know Florida has that all over their whiteboard. Oh, absolutely. It, their, their coach, um, Sunbelt Billy, is going to have that engaged in their brain and say, hey guys, you know, he's saying this about us, go out there and make him regret it. So um, last year, these two teams are really similar to the two teams that they had last year, other than obviously the big you know, losses with AR-15 and Hooker. Um, but Graham Mertz is not Anthony Richardson. And Anthony Richardson was the only reason that this Florida team was in the game with Tennessee last year. And the swamp makes a huge difference. But just looking at this game, you know, 30,000-foot view, it's a lot of the same Florida players, a lot of the same Tennessee players, and no Anthony Richardson to be found. Yeah, I mean, Florida's passing game is, is trash. I think really, I think Tennessee will be tested because of the away atmosphere, but I think Tennessee needs to load the box and make the Gators beat them through the air because I don't think Graham Mertz can do that. So the big thing with the Florida game, uh, going back through history, is usually the team that has the most rushing yards wins this game. And with the front seven that Florida's going to be facing and the running back room, Tennessee has, I think that is a kind of a sub storyline that not a lot of people are going to talk about that really, really plays into Tennessee's favor. If, if Tennessee has more rushing yards and they still lose the game, that means Joe Milton was awful. Absolutely. That means Joe Milton had a terrible, terrible day. And I, I don't want to say I don't see that happening because I don't have wood to knock on, but I don't see that happening. There you go. Thank you. So um, when we come back, we're up against a break. When we come back, we'll have Michelle Knezevic join us and she will break down all things Titans and Saints, and we will be right back. Hey, this is DJ Gus the Bus. You can tune in to Dungeons of That Dragons on Mondays, 4 to 5 p.m. at WNTS Murfreesboro. Call us at 615-898-5051. That number again is 615-898-5051. Snake, what are you doing? Colonel, I'm trying to sneak around, but I'm listening to WMTS, and the blast from my AirPods keeps alerting the guards. Music for the phony tough and the crazy brain. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. I'm Danny. I'm the host of pop radio show Glory Days. You 
can tune in every Tuesday from 1 to 2 p.m. for a show full of fun, feel-good dance music here at WMTS Murfreesboro. interested in laid-back instrumental bands, or maybe you want to expand your horizons and discover new music from artists from all over the world. If so, you can tune in on Fridays from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. for my show Spice Things Up on 88.3 WMTS Murfreesboro. I'm DJ LJ, the host of Operation Lifesaver, every Monday morning from 9 to 11 a.m. We play soul and hip-hop and talk about the latest things going on in the music industry. Again, that's every Monday from 9 to 11 a.m. on 88.3 WMTS Murfreesboro. Hey, everybody. This is Tally, and you can check out my show, Anything and Everything, from 1 to 2 p.m. Thursdays on WMTS Murfreesboro. and the two-tone blue came home from New Orleans with a loss after Mike Vrabel decided to kick a field goal to cut the Saints' lead to one rather than go for it on fourth down to try to take a lead late. After you're done listening to our show, the Bills and Josh Allen travel to MetLife Stadium to take on New York in Aaron Rodgers' debut as a Jet. With the 2448 show, I'm Adam Brown.
towards that. It'd be a great idea to listen. If you ever want to make a song request, call us at 615-898-5051. That number again is 615-898-5051. Josh Heupel so far in his Tennessee tenure and struggled in a win over Austin Peay last weekend. 
It was reported that Tennessee team leaders held a players-only meeting where quarterback Joe Milton took responsibility for the team's slow start. The Titans had a less than eventful opening game where they failed to score a touchdown. Brian Tannehill threw three interceptions, and the two-tone blue came home from New Orleans with a loss after Mike Grable decided to kick a field goal to cut the Saints' lead to one rather than go for it on fourth down to try to take a lead late. After you're done listening to our show, the Bills and Josh Allen travel to MetLife Stadium to take on New York and Aaron Rodgers' debut as a Jet. With the 2448 Show, I'm Adam Brown. Welcome back into the 2448 Show. We are having some technical difficulties with our phones, so we are going to have to get Michelle in another week. We will get with her as soon as we get off the air to try and get that scheduled. I know everybody was looking forward to Michelle. We definitely were in her insight with the Saints and Titans. That's pretty unique, actually, considering she was Titans media and then just recently moved to New Orleans. So we were looking forward to that, but we'll get that corrected. Uh, But me and Connor have you covered. We've got all the Titans information you need to know, starting with the loss against the Saints that, Connor, I don't know about you, but I place uh, purely on Ryan Tannehill. Absolutely. I mean, the defense, if you give up 16 points a game in the NFL, you ought to win at the very least, 13 or 14-year games during the season. I mean, he he had weapons there with DeAndre Hopkins. I mean, there's no more excuses. He just he didn't show up in the run game, kind of built him out, but which wasn't enough. When we did our preseason predictions, I was coming from the standpoint of Ryan Tannehill is going to be average to slightly above average throwing to DeAndre Hopkins and Traylon Burks, which is a really good wide receiver room, especially considering what they had last year and before the D-Hop signing went through. But what we couldn't have predicted during our record predictions was Ryan Tannehill coming out and repeating his Cincinnati playoff performance and throwing three picks. I mean, that might have been the worst game of his career. Like you said, three picks, no touchdown passes. He had an 18.8 QBR. All he has to do is be average, and Tennessee wins that game. All you have to do is be average, maybe even a little bit under average. You just can't throw three interceptions and overthrow two touchdown routes, which people have been complaining about the play calling, which I think some of that is just carryover from last season where the play calling was really terrible. Not that Todd Downing is a really high bar to clear, um, but if Tannehill hits, it was Spears on a wheel route and it was – Chig on kind of a trick play where he kind of leaked out and then went up the field. Wide open. And then yeah. he just he threw in double coverage. I mean, maybe in triple coverage to D-Hop. He's just, I don't know, got to make better reads. If he hits either of those two touchdowns right there, we're not talking about – we're not talking about play calling. We're not talking about play calling. We're not talking about um, his – I really – if he hits those, he had a good day. Not a great day, but an okay day because he threw two touchdown passes and we win. So it's like Tannehill needs to get his, his interceptions under control. And we're talking about, you know, three interceptions, but not three interceptions that ruined the entire day. And who knows if he even throws all three of those if he hits those two touchdown routes. Were, were any of those interceptions on the series where he threw the series where he threw the interceptions? I don't believe so. I mean, and even even with those three interceptions, they still had a chance to go down there on that last drive where where Brable um, chose to kick the field goal, and make it sixteen fifteen. But even with that. The team played that well that they still had a chance to go there and win. And Ryan Taylor, he just couldn't – he couldn't um, play good in the clutch. Which, you know, Vrabel did his Vrabel thing in the press conference, and he's like, the defense has to play better, and we got to tackle better. And 
running backs have to run better and the quarterback has to throw better. He basically listed every single position on the team and said they need to do whatever they do better. Uh, I don't think that's fair to the defense at all. Because like I said earlier, in today's football, if the defense has you within striking distance and you've got the ball last, then they did their job. Because the rules are directly opposed to the defense being successful. And the defense was more than successful. And in fact, even had a touchdown taken off the board by the referees. That was the most clear and obvious fumble. I don't know about you, Connor, but when I throw a football, I I normally don't let go of it and then punch it where I want it to go. I I usually, like, you know, palm the football and throw it. Uh, But, I mean, Derek Carr can throw it however he wants. It's just if he punches it, it's a fumble. Well, I mean, I agree with you. I I think the referee, he might have been a little scared, you know, to to get the backlash because that's a very hostile environment. But no excuse for that. That was clearly a fumble. I mean, and even – even without Tannehill, that would have been the win. But the defense, it was not on them. They allowed 16 points, and that New Orleans offense, it's not like what it used to be, but it is still probably a top 15, top 17 group, and that's a hostile environment in New Orleans. And they, I thought they played their butts off, honestly. Well, the referees took away a scoop and score from both teams that we covered this weekend. They took a scoop and score away from Tennessee, the Vols, and Tennessee, the Titans. And luckily, the only one that really matters is the Titans because Tennessee, the Volunteers, didn't – lose, which if they did lose, you know we'd be talking about that scoop and score that they took off the board, because that running back took four steps and halfway tried to juke somebody before he let go of the ball. That that was even more of a fumble than the Derek Carr one was, I think. Oh, absolutely. But, yeah, that was a ten-point swing in the Titans game, in a game where the Saints win 16-15, because the Saints kick a field goal right after that call isn't reversed. And even the broadcast booth, the two commentators and Gene Steratore, the rules expert, all three said, oh, that's a fumble. And then they review it, and they come back out, and they save their own butt and say the call on the field stands, which is terrible considering that the call on the field was incorrect, not in, oh, that was a fumble. It was incorrect procedure because the referees are taught to let that play go and then fix it after the fact. And one of the referees stepped out and blew the whistle as Bayard was returning that ball for a touchdown and stopped the play. So not only was it a fumble, but the referees officiated that play wrong, and then when they had a chance to go to review and fix it, they doubled down on it, which is which is what makes it so frustrating that Vrabel didn't – I know he has to be careful of like a fine, but he's got to have his teams back press conference today there's ways to go about it where you maybe don't get fined but you make it very clear that you were not okay he's on the competition committee so like when the reporters are asking you about that play and you act like that's a dumb question who else should they ask I mean, you, you that's the media for you and they're there to ask and answer questions for you and just bring that to you but i mean about the whole fine thing that man makes enough money to he does, he does not need to worry about a fine. I mean, go out there and have your teams back and say, listen, my team played good. The referees, they didn't they didn't mess us over and cost us the game, but we didn't get any favors, and that was a call that should have been made. I don't know where you stand on the – I've seen this conversation come up as a result of the officiating in both of these games. I don't know where you stand on this, but uh, some people like to take the stance of, like, referees don't ever decide the outcome of a game. And I agree with that to an extent. I think – the people that take that stance really hard and they're like, referees don't ever decide the outcome of a game. I don't agree with that. I don't think referees are ever, referees are not usually 
the main reason you lost. They can have a huge hand in it, and sometimes they are the main reason you lost. That's the part that people refuse to believe for some Some people refuse to believe. It's their little soapbox. They're like, you should have scored more points. It's like, well, yeah, if the other team wasn't as good, we would have. Like, of course you want to score more points. But in, in like, college and pro sports, you have two high-level groups of athletes that are both trying to beat the other group. And so – it's not just as simple as score more points. Like sometimes it's two really close teams and it can come down to a call one way or the other because we say football is a game of inches and like, you know, one or two plays can decide the outcome of a game. If one or two plays can decide the outcome of a game and a referee can determine the outcome of those one or two plays, they determined the outcome. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like we go back to, and this is pretty much the, the poster child for all referee, you know, costing games, but the Rams Saints, I believe it was 2018, and it's not just an on-the-field thing, it's a mindset thing, because when that pass interference wasn't called, the air in that building, it, it was gone. Because they, they, the Saints were thinking that should have been a penalty, you know, first and goal, like the, the three-yard line or something like that. And we're running up the middle with Kamara, and that's a touchdown, we win the game. I mean, it's more than just on the field and just scoring points. The scenario that I lay out for people when I get into this argument is um, hockey is, overtime hockey specifically, is one of the most exciting atmospheres in sports because the game can be over at any given time at any second the game can just be over because it's sudden death golden goal overtime so in this hypothetical scenario you have two teams that are tied in overtime and there's two different ways i'll present this scenario one is the referee calls a phantom penalty on your team the other team gets a power play they go up a player so you're at a disadvantage they score and win the game so sometimes that's enough, and people are like, oh, yeah, that does make sense. Sometimes people are like, you got to defend the power play. And it's like, okay, well, take this version. It's 5v5. There was no penalty. The other team shoots, and your goalie stops it before it's, you know, it's one of those ones that trickles towards the line. Your goalie stops it before it crosses the line, but the referee says that it did. And you lose the game because the referee said that the puck crossed the line. They go to replay. And they double down and say that the puck crossed the line, even though it clearly didn't. Who decided that game? Referees. Exactly. exactly. So I don't like the little soapbox of referees never decide games. Because if, if I can lay out two scenarios for you in one sport, there's probably more than that. And then you multiply that by all the professional sports that we play. But I think the biggest thing was what I said earlier, where it's coaches say one to two plays decide football games. And referees can have an impact and it can be the wrong one on any given play so if they happen to screw up that one or two plays that decided the game they had a big hand in deciding the game but let's finish all this off with that play was not why Tennessee lost to the Saints because Ryan Tannehill is the reason that the Titans lost to the Saints and we covered the play calling some people have had a problem with that I don't purely based on if Tannehill is average, we win, and we're not talking about play calling because they dialed up two free touchdowns that he missed. The one problem I do have with the play calling is Tajay Spears outsnapped Derrick Henry, and that is indefensible. That is That should never happen. Derrick Henry got 48% of the running back snaps. Tajay Spears is a good player. He is not a priority weapon that you put Henry on the sideline for. Like, oh, man, we got to get – we got to get Tajay Spears at least X many touches a game because he's that dude. Like, that's not the case. No, 
I mean, Derek Henry, he's clear that guy, and he needs to get, get the ball at least probably 20 to 25 times a game. But I'll say Tajay Spears. Derek Henry is that guy. He, you, he said, is you, you said a number. Like, Derek needs to touch the ball this many times. Yes. Tajay Spears is a good player. He's not Derek Henry. He's not a guy that you put a number on. Like, man, Tajay, Tajay should at least touch the ball like 10 times. That would be a disservice to football if we didn't get Tajay the ball. That's not the case. No. I mean, Derek Henry in the past, he's won you ball games just because of how good he is as a runner. I'm not against Tajay Sharp getting reps because he's a better receiving back, which, I mean, it would be nice to have him and Derek Henry at the same time and have, you know, Tajay out, out in the slot or maybe run out a little wheel route. But Derek Henry is your best player on your team. He has to be on, on the field at least probably 70% of the snaps, at least. There, there should not be – this was my biggest problem. There should not be a first down that Derek Henry is not on the field. They should not walk out for a first down of like the first play of the series and Tajay Spears be the running back. That should never happen. And then every first down after that, Tajay Spears needs to sub out because Derrick Henry needs to be in the game. And I'm not saying run the ball on every first down because I hate that too. But I for sure want the defense thinking about it. I for sure want their linebackers thinking, oh, my God, Derrick Henry's bigger than me. He's faster than me. He, they're about to give him the ball. What am I going to do? Like, I want that running through their head instead of, oh, Tajay Spears is out here. That means they're passing. Like, I, th- those, that's two completely, ends of, two completely different ends of the confidence and play-calling spectrum is having Derrick Henry out there versus Tajay because I don't think they handed Tajay the ball that much. Three times. Three times. Even though he out-snapped Derrick, he only got an actual handoff three times. Yes. So you're literally – it's like you're playing poker and you're flipping over one of your cards and showing the whole rest of the table, like, hey, he's out here, so we're probably throwing it. Like, just so you know, it's probably a pass. I don't know. And, and the commentators talked about it in the, in the game. You know, Derek Henry, he gets better as the game goes along because he, he's basically a, a tank with legs. And whenever you're going up against that 20, 30 times a game, you're going to get worn down. So whenever it comes to the fourth quarter time and crunch time where, hey, Tannehill's not playing his best game, get the ball to our you know workhorse, he didn't tire them out enough because he only got – I mean, 14 touches. Also, the O-line was a big question coming into the season, and they did not play good. I don't want to I don't want to make it sound like I think the O-line played good yesterday, but they didn't play bad enough for Tannehill to have the game that he had. I, I just keep coming back to all Tannehill had to do was be average because an average quarterback splits those touchdown routes, basically. He hits one of them, maybe misses the other one. And you know what happens? The Titans win. So all he had to do was be average, and he couldn't do that, which leads me directly into next week against the Chargers where the Titans are going to be going up against Derwin James, Khalil Mack, and Joey Bosa. So if you couldn't handle the Saints' defense, and if the, the O-line had a bad day against the Saints' defense with Cam Jordan, imagine this. The O-line's going to have more than they can handle. Derwin James is licking his lips watching Tannehill play my goodness, I've got uh, Derwin James on a fantasy team where we have defensive players. He's going to win me my matchup next week with Tannehill throwing the ball. So I, that's the one positive that can be taken from the Chargers matchup next week for me is that my fantasy team will probably do well. Yep. I, I will say, though, they and I know it's it's Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle, but still that Chargers secondary got demolished. So that leaves you with, with the, the mindset of, of, you know, hey, if we can get Derrick Henry in there running and they've got to focus on the run and the pass, can – Contain will get some you know, some check downs and some easy passes to Diop and, 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 and Chug. I mean, the, in that game, they're defending Jalen Waddle and Tyree Kill, and we don't have Jalen Waddle or Tyree Kill. And I would have 
I would have made a face at you in the preseason show if you said Tua is better than Tannehill, but based on one week, Tua is a lot better than Tannehill. So um, this is a step down for this Chargers defense, and I think they're going to be looking to bounce back after not having a good week, and that's not a good recipe for the Titans, especially on the this – is, is this, this is at home, right? Uh, yes. Okay, so it's not that they have to deal with their road environment or anything, but also with the, the we talked about Nissan Stadium earlier. The 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 couple of times they have gotten near a sellout, it's with opposing teams' fans. Yeah. So maybe there will be somewhat of a, a Charger presence there with people looking to visit Nashville. So before we go, every show we're going to end with our predictions for the weekend. I'm going to allow Connor to do an Alabama prediction every week. Just because I'm so Thank nice. You. But we're going to start with the two Tennessee teams. Actually, no, let's save that. Go ahead. We'll do we'll do Bama first. So Bama's got uh, USF, right? I wonder what you're going to go with here. This is a cupcake, and, I mean, I think it might not be as high scoring because we're going to try out, hopefully, some different quarterbacks, different looks. So I think they're going to get that going. They're going to try and establish the run game, make it more balanced because the run game is really good until they find out your guy can't throw and they just blow the box. So they're going to try to clamp some mistakes. I said we win something like 45 to 13, 45-10. You know, you walked in here all depressed because of the Bama game, but I just remembered you're a Packers fan. You should be, like, ecstatic. That's a weird feeling, isn't it? Hey, love is in the air. You're, you're, that's a weird combination of emotions between, like, you know, we, we went through Brett Favre and then Aaron Rodgers, and now Jordan Love looks really good, and we just, you know, we just won our first game, but also Alabama lost. That's a, This is a weird cocktail of the weekend for you. And then I want my, my money leaks in fantasy, so it's it's mixed emotions, but it's it'll, it's okay. And we're in that same fantasy league. Did you win? I did indeed. Yeah, I did not. I lost by less than a point. I'm assuming you were playing a guy with the Dallas Cowboys defense. No, I wasn't. I was playing Christian and I had Tony Pollard, <laughs> and because Dallas was winning by that much, they stopped giving him the ball. They subbed him out. So, uh, one of my friends is a Cowboys fan, and uh, he... Uh, he was like, oh, Adam. And I was like, what? Because he knew he knew the situation. He was like, we just handed the ball to our slot receiver, and he scored a touchdown in the fourth quarter. So that uh, that touchdown that should have gone to Tony Pollard and won me the game went to their fourth-string running back because they were up 45,000 to zero. <laughs> so I got beat by less than a point this weekend, which is the worst. Fantasy football can be so much fun and also so demoralizing because – I'm in six leagues, and now I have to go, like, all the way back through and be like, and, like, restack all my lineups, get back for, like, you know, be excited for the weekend and not thinking about how I just lost by less than a point. All right, so let's do our Tennessee predictions. I, uh, my main point from earlier was the, the rushing attack and the, the history of the rushing attack in the Tennessee-Florida game, and the team that has more rushing yards usually wins. And with Tennessee's front seven and their running back room, that's a good combination for them. I've got Tennessee beating Florida 41-31 in the swamp, and I will be there. I have, you know, I think that all Tennessee needs to do is get Milton, um, yeah, Milton, you know, kind of settle down, let him let him get a rhythm and load the box because if you take away that run game, I do not think Graham Mertz can beat you through the air. And Ricky Pearsall, I mean, they're, just, they're not going to beat you. They're not going to be game world beaters. I've got um, Tennessee winning something like 35 24, 35, 21, something like that. Uh, and if you can't tell already, I hate this matchup for the Titans uh, with what they showed on Sunday. So I've got the Chargers winning 31-17. Well, I'm close with you. I have the Chargers winning 31-13. All right. Well, that is going to do it for our second episode. 
You are listening to the 2448 Show on WMTS Murfreesboro. We will see you next Monday, and hopefully I will be alive getting out of the swamp. And uh, Connor's going to have a good weekend because his uh, Packers and uh, Tide are going to win. So uh, we will see you next Monday. Thank you, and God bless.